Linux Out Loud is firing up our mics, connecting those headphones as we search a community for themes to expound upon. We keep the banter friendly, the conversation somewhat on topic, and have fun doing it. This week, we're spotting off about sometimes old tech is better. Let's get into episode 21. Linux Out Loud is brought to you by DigitalOcean and Bitwarden. And with me today is Wendy, like a scorching hot summer day, burning camera knowledge straight into you, and the network professor of educational sysadmin, Bill. How are you two? Doing pretty well. Dang, I think you nailed that intro. Like, bam. I had to make sure I was wording it correctly. I do kind of view Bill as quite the professor. You're putting me on a platform I shouldn't be on. I don't know about that. You're definitely in that realm, especially with all the stuff you do related to schools and the stuff you've helped me with, I will concur with Nate, the professor. Great. Outvoted. (laughs) (laughs) So, Bill, I understand that you are back from your vacation and you got something new. I am. I came home on Saturday afternoon to scorching 90 plus degrees after being next to the ocean and catching that wonderful sea breeze. But it was great to come home and see my animals again. I missed them very much. And today I picked up a new truck. So my old truck was at the end of the lease. It was time to say goodbye to it. So now I have gone from the red truck to the blue truck. Now, is this the same brand or what is it that you're driving? I happen to love my Honda Ridgelines because one really cool feature that they have is this sort of trunk built into the bed. And because I'm frequently on the road, I can stuff that whole little trunk, if you will call it that, with cables and tools and wire ties and all sorts of various fun gadgets that someone like me needs when they're out in the road doing networking stuff. The truck also has the ability to flip up the back seats so it makes it really easy for my dogs to get in and out when I want to take them somewhere. That sounds really nice. I like the fact that you are able to find something else that still fits your needs because I know the last one you had also had that kind of quote unquote, trunk portion in the bed of the pickup. Good way to hide things. They call it the body cavity, I guess. Um, Not that I have (laughs) bodies to stuff in there, but I went from the same truck to the same truck. So I'm boring. I like my trucks because sometimes it's difficult to learn a new interface of a car. It's one thing to learn a new Linux desktop or a new application, but when you're driving down the road at 65 miles an hour, learning something new is a little bit more challenging. We just got to take it around the parking lot a few times. There you go. We got our current vehicle that I'm driving back and forth every day about a year ago, bought it used, of course. And it was one of those things that now that you mention it, I think about now I'm headed down the road and the first time that I need to turn on the windshield wipers, oh, I haven't done that in this car. Where are those settings and that kind of stuff? So yeah, I can totally understand wanting to kind of keep the same layout from vehicle to vehicle. Is this one newer or is it the same year? Did you literally just switch colors? This one's newer. So I have a 2022 and I traded in a 2019. So it was just simply going from one to the other and I even told the person who sold me the vehicle, you don't even need to show me anything about it. I'm very familiar with the interface. I just need to set my mirrors and set my seat, plug in my phone, and away I go. Nice. The one thing I do want to attempt to do is to see if 
Nate, maybe you can fit into that little cavity sometime. We can try that if you ever come out to visit me. (laughs) (laughs) Gotta smuggle me over a border or something, like into Rhode Island? I will smuggle you into various parts of the eastern seaboard and load you up with almost all the seafood that you could tolerate. Well, I think I'd prefer to actually sit in a seat as opposed to the luggage compartment. I'm just thinking, like cramping. I need to put my luggage in the seat area so that it doesn't overheat. So that's why you have to ride in the luggage compartment. So you have no concern about me overheating in the luggage compartment. (laughs) You'll be fine. You are such a sweetheart. Happy to oblige. (laughs) Look at Bill fitting in. Yep, he knows how to fire him off. Speaking of firing them off, Magneto has asked me to make a label for him. This is the second time he's kind of put together this different seasoning. We've got a family reunion coming up and he wants a label on it. So I've been having a lot of fun working on a label for him. And Ryan promised me during the last live Destination Linux that Michael was going to get my shirt done that very day. And if he didn't get it done, he was losing money in the process. I don't know exactly what that entailed between the two of them. But Ryan was like, you're getting Wendy's shirt finished. Now, we've had one in the works for a really long time, and I thought it was going to be a specific shirt. I get a message from Ryan. I believe it was Sunday night. Yeah, it would have been Sunday because it was the day of the recording of the show. And he goes, yeah, your shirt's done. And I'm like, great. Um, where's the picture? And of course, he doesn't share a picture. So Monday morning, I go hunting for it because he didn't share it. And this is what I find. There's links in the show description, but it's called Sinister Wendy. And Ryan is the one that came up with this design. And then Michael took it and made it just a little bit better. So you've got a smiley face in the back with a halo. And then another smiley face in front of it. And the way they're aligned, the smile on the smiley face in the back gives the front one horns. Here's the text. I'm always nice until the mic turns off. Now I want to ask you guys, is that true? No, I say you're always nice. Always nice. I would never cross (laughs) you, Wendy. I would absolutely forbid myself from ever saying anything that could potentially be upsetting to you at all. Wow, you made me sound really, really bad. Like, holy cow. Whatever do you mean? We wouldn't want to anger Wendy because she might go off the rails. Well, I didn't say off the rails necessarily. Rule number one, never upset Wendy, ever. We don't know (laughs) what the consequences will be quite yet, but for your own safety. I think it's completely fair. I don't see any problems with uh, following that rule. I thought it turned out a lot of fun. I sent it to my brother after I saw it the first time. He got an absolute kick out of it. Magneto likes it. As you guys know, we have a lot of behind the scenes discussion that just can't make the cut for the GPG reading that we like to have on the network. But Bill's getting a little taste of that. I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Always so fresh and so clean, clean, right? Absolutely. Hang on while I straighten out my halo. It may have bent a little bit. (laughs) I'm pretty excited about you have your own shirt. I think it's about time I don't know what took so long for this shirt to to be put into motion. I'm glad it's there because now you have your own specific merchandise that I think is completely and totally fitting, I think. I mean, it's not fitting at all. Absolutely not fitting at all. (laughs) Wait a minute. How do you know the shirt fits until you try it on? How can you know it's actually fitting? Oh, I totally plan to get one, which 
kind of feels a little bit weird to wear a shirt that was made for me and it's hashtag Team Wendy on it, but I guess I should be Team Wendy because I am Wendy. I don't know. But I've told Michael in the past, especially this time of year, I love the Razorback tank tops. They're about all I wear from the time the weather gets warm until I just can't make them work anymore in the fall where it just gets way too cold. And there is a Razorback tank in the lineup of all the different things that you can get with this Sinister Wendy going on. One of them is also an apron, and I kind of wanted to get that for Magneto before the family reunion. I just don't know if that's actually going to happen, but I think it would be a ton of fun to have my husband wearing a Sinister Wendy apron as we're doing some different smoked meats for the family reunion. I think that would be fantastic. And I'm still waiting for the Twill While You Grill with Bill apron. Ooh, that would be awesome. (laughs) Well, if you're waiting for Michael, it may be a little while. Yes, I would love for the original concept that Michael and I were talking about before to come out. That one, I think the artwork is definitely harder. It's part of the reason why it hasn't come out quite yet. There's definitely more to it in order to make it work and look really good. Michael's kind of been swamped with all of the network changes and stuff he's working on in the back end. So eventually, the other one that I'm thinking of, the other one that's been in the works, hopefully will make the shop too. But this one is a lot of fun. And if you're Team Wendy... Go check out tuxdigital.com slash Sinister Wendy, and it will take you directly to all of the things that has this new design on it. That just sounds like fun. I mean, assuming it's true. I am never sinister. I'm always sweet, sweet, sweet. <laughs> sweet like a gooseberry. Just don't ask my husband or my children. Nate, you've had all kinds of issues with your 3D printer. It's been one of the running themes that we've been talking about over the course of the show the last few episodes, maybe even a month, probably even more. And one of the things that came up during that time was multiple filaments in a single print head. I got some feedback recently on the DLN community forum about some really cool open source projects that do this. And it looks like you found the same project too. Are you going to be building this? But it was actually from those links that I kind of went down that bunny trail of all kinds of interesting things. The open source printer platform is called Voron Printers. I'm assuming it's pronounced that way, V-O-R-O-N. And this project that was related to it called the Enraged Rabbit Project allows you to print multiple color filaments with a single print head. You put the different filaments into essentially a feeder of some kind, and then that will switch the feed of the filament to the next color that's needed on the same layer. So what's very cool about this is you can do, I think it was, I read it earlier, how many, up to nine channels of different colors. And it's designed to run with the Voron printer, but it can be adapted to other printers as well. And I was just thinking how neat this would be to have multiple printers, especially for like something more artistic. And they give you some examples there. It's like a a really cool multicolored Spider-Man, which my kids are into Spider-Man right now. Very neat, the outcome of it. I'm a little concerned at this point about how much filament is wasted in the flushing process. And I didn't quite fully understand how it actually switches the filament material into the print head. Like I'm not sure how that, that exact process, but it has extruder gears that load and unload the filament and everything else. So maybe it just pulls it back and then pushes the new one in. That's my guess is how it does that. It's really neat that someone has actually figured this out. I've heard of such things in the past for other printers, but the fact that there's an open source on GitHub feeder that allows you to have multiple different different colors of filament is pretty cool. I can't help but think is I wonder 
if such a thing could be done like this, but if you had like a dual or triple print head, so you know maybe one particular filament you only ran, like let's say black, you had lots of black or whatever, you could select whichever one is most common, then you would have to waste as much filament. So you see next to whatever's being printed, there's like a block, what looks like of the purging process. So it seems like there is the propensity to have a lot of used filament here. So anyway, it's a very neat project. I really like the idea, the concept. It's very interesting to see how different problems are getting solved with you know, multiple colors and so forth. It was a really great bit of feedback that we got that sent me down a rabbit trail for hours upon hours. So thank you very much for doing that. I'm not going to call it lost productivity because my wheel's cranking. And I think now, because of this, I really, really think that I want to build my next 3D printer using this as the base. I'm not there yet. I've got other things I got to build first. It's such a neat project that I think this would be the printer to go with just because of how versatile it is. And the fact that it's such a versatile platform that is mostly printable, it appears, outside of the you know, aluminum extrusion, it might be the basis for a slightly larger 3D printer in the future. Because having you know, something that could do 12 inch by 12 inch would be a lot better for me for a lot of larger things that I need to print. And I can leave my Ender 3 for some of the smaller items. And you definitely want to stick with the same kind of filament and using different colors. The downside of using multiple different types of filaments, and that's one of the reasons I was kind of looking at something that had two different print heads on it, was because I wanted to be able to print a specific support structure filament that maybe needs to be heated at a different temperature plus the regular filament that I'm printing because I've definitely had some issues where the structure doesn't come off very well or there's leaves just little bits and pieces on it that you then have to sand off, which it's not the end of the world. It can be done, but it can be kind of a pain. And on my daughter's dragon skull, that's where we ran into the most issues when it came to taking off those support structures. It absolutely had to have supports there is no way that it could have been printed without it. But as we were taking off some of those support structures, because the little ends of those different horns, the different spikes on it were embedded in that support structure. And because of how those different layers were put down, they broke off super easy. And she lost a lot of the tips of those horns, those spikes inside that support structure. And they do make some that's water soluble. So it'd be really cool to do something that's more delicate like that and then be able to rinse off the support structures. But this is a fantastic way to solve the multiple color problem. You're right, you do end up with a lot of different waste. I know I saw a different machine where it was automatically pulling different filaments through, and this one was definitely proprietary, but it would have to retract and kind of cut off some of that used filament that had been heated or messed with whatnot. So you'd end up with like this bucket in the back full of filament that was used or discarded during that process. I love these open source projects with that. I'm not sad that I started with an Ender product because the first time printing, I think I would have been overwhelmed if I was, for me, this is just me personally, if I was building my printer from scratch the first time and trying to figure out 3D printing. But like you, this is definitely one of the things that I've got in my future for building the same person. And I'm sorry, I wish I could share your username. I'm just not entirely sure how to pronounce it. So there will be a link in the show description to that feedback. He did share 
his current build that's almost done using some of these open source resources, plans in order for building one. His looks absolutely awesome. I love it. And the way that it's set up, I kind of played with it a little bit and you can kind of pick and choose some of your different options as you're getting the materials and the design for how you want to build your 3D printer really, really flexible as so many open source projects are. So thank you again for bringing this to light. And I'm so glad that you found it useful too, Nate. I just want to point out also that this can do multiple material types. So they have an example of PLA plus and TPU mixed together in one print. So there is that as well. I would worry about the heating in between and the possibility of material getting stuck. So if you're using material that needs a much higher heat and then you bring in a material that doesn't need it so hot, maybe some of that previous material being stuck in that print head and you getting a blockage from doing the switch between those two things. Oh, it sounds like it's a risky game, but it right. looks like it's doing it successfully. So I don't know what kind of secret sauce they have in it that's doing that. Perhaps maybe the purging process to get rid of enough of it. Possibly. I don't know. I don't even see any like bleeding of color anywhere. So pretty fantastic, I think. Very cool. I'll definitely have to look into that some more. This episode of Linux Out Loud is brought to you by DigitalOcean. Cloud computing can be, let's say, complex. But standing up reliable, affordable cloud infrastructure really doesn't have to be. At DigitalOcean, you can enjoy a comprehensive portfolio of compute, storage, database, and networking products that put your cloud infrastructure in capable hands so you and your team can get back to doing what matters most, building world-changing apps that grow your business. DigitalOcean also provides you with predictable pricing, robust product docs, and services that developers love. DigitalOcean helps teams regardless of size, whether you're a team of one to a team of 1,000 people. DigitalOcean helps your team grow with their simple, powerful cloud computing services. As a listener of Linux Out Loud and a member of the DLN community, you can get started for free. In fact, even better than free because DigitalOcean is giving you a $100 credit when you sign up at do.co slash tux2022. That's do.co slash tux 2022. So again, you can get started with your $100 credit on DigitalOcean's awesome cloud platform by going to do.co slash tux 2022. And we want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of Linux Out Loud. Last week, when we're getting ready to start off the show on having burnout in technology, some other conversation that came up was, I think it was me venting about sometimes old stuff is better than new. And we went down that bunny trail for a while. And you, Wendy, very nicely and politely, because you always are that way, pulled us back on topic and recommended we shift this over to next week. And so here we are, sometimes old stuff is better. And my number one example was an education software where I learned to type using Mavis Beacon. I think it's still better than the options that are out there now. I've played with a lot of them and they're okay, but they're really not, I think, as complete of a product, although obviously the graphics are not as nice as today's stuff. But I think Mavis Beacon is a better educational bit of software than what I am using today with my kids. What did you prefer about that? Or let me backtrack. So 
you jokingly said something to Bill about how Windows 95 still needed to be used, something along those lines, which then was a major trigger for him. And we went down the road of, yes, there are some schools that still have these really old images on their servers and they're using these different systems for specific education pieces of software and you're like well sometimes it's okay which you brought up mavis beacon what do you like about that particular typing software that you can't find on anything new and what is mavis beacon native to so mavis beacon is a border bund bit of software i think it's from the 90s i'm not 100 sure but they go through the process of really step-by-step hand-holding in the beginning of learning to type i feel like a lot of the newer bits of software out there make some assumptions that you already know some things and it's probably fine for many but the way they just kind of handhold you especially in the beginning and then you know going through the different difficulty levels now it's been a while since i've used mavis beacon but going through different difficulty levels, it seemed like Mavis Beacon was just a better tutor than some of these more edutainment style learn to type things. You know, a lot of stuff I see now, it's kind of like missile command on the Atari, but you have to type the right letters, the right words to get them to go to destroy the falling word bit so you know, it doesn't destroy your city. And that's all fine and dandy, but you know, where's the actual tutoring piece of it? That's like just practice for typing once you've achieved a certain level. And they have like easier ones where you just do you know, home row and stuff like that, or one letter at a time. It just doesn't seem like as good of an educational experience to go through. Mavis Beacon, to me, seemed like a complete package, a complete experience, go from nothing to something useful. I too, Nate, had learned how to type with Mavis Beacon and found it to be an amazing utility. And Mavis Beacon actually goes back to the late 80s when I was learning how to type on a Mac Classic. So that goes back... Quite a ways. Oh, yeah. Some of the other really cool old school education software that I really enjoyed was Where in Time and Where in the World was Carmen Sandiego. Yes, absolutely. I remember the show and I vaguely remember the game. I know we had it at one point. That was a lot of fun. It actually was a lot of fun to play Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego. That game also got me into dad jokes because (laughs) you had characters like Lee and Bill Ding or Justin Time that you were trying to catch along the way. You really had to read that encyclopedia to figure out where Carmen Sandiego had gone off to. There was a kind of creativity that was put into play on Carmen Sandiego that made it fun to learn the different geographical locations. I don't know if it's a lack of creativity necessarily or effort or I I don't know. I feel like some of the newer geography type programs, I haven't actually looked at any in a while, but the last time I looked at something online, I just felt like they phoned it in. They didn't really take the time to develop characters. Like somehow, like also with like the children's game show that was on TV in the 80s or 90s, whenever that came out, they really made Carmen Sandiego quite the character and, and the people trying to catch Carmen Sandiego characters. And so you almost felt a little bit invested in the ideas as well of Carmen Sandiego because of the personality they put behind it. I feel like some of the newer stuff, it's just the task at hand with no real artistic flair to it. My kids play quite a few different learning education games, and there is something lost in those. They do play a few that have great storylines with them. One of the ones that they really like to play, and I guess it's not really even a storyline, but you have missions that are part of it and they will add a touch of story to it is the Prodigy game. So that one is specifically for math and you have to do different battles. And of course, each 
battle in order to progress, you're solving a math problem. One of the downside of that, one of the downsides of this newer piece of software is the only way to use it is through a browser. And the advantage of some of this older technology, this older learning software, is you had a physical copy of it that was on your local machine. And if your internet was down, or in the cases of many of these where there was no internet, you could still use that as a resource in your lessons, your reviews, or whatnot. Whereas where we are with some of these different pieces of education software, especially the ones that my kids really like, if our internet's ever down that's it. You can't actually use them. And it kind of goes to a place that Bill was talking about last week with some of the things he deals with in schools is there is so much content, curriculum, resources that are delivered over a network now that you can be in situations if you don't have something planned ahead to do instead where oops, there goes the lesson for the day. Now what are we going to do? For me, that's not that big of a deal because I just have my four kids and trust me, I can find other stuff to do with them. The bathrooms always need cleaned. But (laughs) in a classroom setting, that would be a lot more difficult. That's a good point when you talk about software requiring the internet being a point of failure that's in many ways, I think, unnecessary. Is that, yeah, as Bill was talking about in the pre-show last week, how much they needed the internet to be able to do a lot of their schooling. And in a way, that makes me kind of sad. Back in my school days, when we used Apple IIEs and 2GS and 2C to, to do these different educational things in the computer lab, if there was a problem with one computer, you go to another computer. There's a problem with a floppy disk, a different floppy disk. You still got the same educational benefit. You know, if it was a slightly different computer, that point of failure of internet was not an issue. Now, don't get me wrong. I think a lot of the software is better today, but there's something, I don't know, uh, it's looking for the right word here. There's something that's more robust, perhaps, about not being so internet dependent. So let me play the other side of that song real quick. Okay, so we got to backtrack. A few things happened along the way. Number one, most recently, was COVID. And what COVID taught many schools was we need to ensure that our students have the ability to do their work from wherever they are, mainly because that's the way the world is going. And so by giving them that handheld device, whether it's a Chromebook or an iPad, they were able to take their work home with them and get real-time feedback regarding the status of their assignment, which was very difficult to do way back when. In the schools that I work with, if you go back 10 years, 12 years ago, that was just unheard of. The students came in, they did their work, and then they went home and did their homework. But my question to you both is, how would you utilize a Mavis Beacon teaching type program on a kid's computer at home where maybe they don't have a computer or they're sharing a computer with many other siblings and a parent who works? It just became a difficult conversation, which is why so much stuff is just on the web now. Have we lost some creative design and artistic flair in our applications? Absolutely. I would agree with that 100%. Well, for me personally, I have a computer that I got from you, Bill, that my kids do share to do their schoolwork on. It's not hard to set up multiple profiles on a single computer for them to, to bounce around on. And personally, I don't have the most reliable internet. Thankfully, it's been pretty decent lately, but I don't know if it's because of the humidity or whatever, but it's affecting the performance of the cellular uplink to the network. Maybe AT&T is having some issues. I don't know. Regardless, 
if I have things that are local on the homeschool computer, as it's colloquially called in the house, then I don't have to worry about, is the internet up or down? My network is always active. Not that it's necessary for most of the applications I run for the kids, but if it's all local, then I don't have to worry about something going down. And frankly, most of it's not really for educational grade necessarily. I'm not really doing that with my kids. It's not really old enough for that, but for the practice and the rehearsal of the different skills you learn. So I don't need the internet anyway to do what I want to do, but I, I've kind of built my, or I should say modified the homeschool curriculum I use so that I'm not tied to the internet, that I can use it. The internet is a educational multiplier, but it's not a requirement in order to get the job done. And I think that's one of the advantages that we have that a lot of schools don't. One of the things that is nice about the one math program that the kids like to play is even if they're currently on it, I can go into the back end and set up different things that I want them to work on. And it instantly changes what problems they're going to get in the next thing. So say we've been working on something. I know, especially my youngest, he absolutely loves to play that. He'll play it on like weekends and all kinds of stuff. It is one of his favorite things to play. Loves math. And I can always go in there at any time and be like, hey, I would like to see maybe where he is on these different things. Because I do have kids, especially my middle two, where when mom's not right there and they're working on math problems, they react to them differently. They do them a little differently than when I'm right with them. And so I'm able to see how are they handling it when we do it together and how are they handling it when they're doing it on their own. And that's where these newer programs have an advantage, at least for me, in our homeschool-related stuff. I'd be interested in knowing what you're using, actually. I'm doing, for math, I'm still just doing pencil and paper at this point. But if there's something that Maybe this is a discussion for not recording, but I'm curious to know what software are you using to do this? We're still doing pencil and paper for the regular math-related stuff, and then online is an additional resource, whereas okay. in classrooms like Bill was talking about, if you have a kid that now needs to be away for the week because the school shut down for a week, instead of them taking home a stack of textbooks, they have one computer where all of that is delivered digitally. They can do their assignments, turn them in that way and not have to worry about it. Is that kind of where you're going with that, Bill, right? That's what they're looking for? Yes. And one of the other things that we've encountered with assignments being offline and take it home and email it to yourself was, I'll never forget this, a student, straight A student came into my office one day in tears because she had spent the better part of a night finalizing a final project for her history class and her hard drive crashed. The computer was dead she had no idea how she was going to get that assignment back. So we had a conversation with that teacher and said, look, this is what happened. I will take the hard drive home and see if I can get the data off of it. But just know this happens in technology sometimes, and we don't really have a way around that right now. Afterwards, I, luckily in that moment, I was able to recover the file, but it taught us something that we need a better mechanism for students to easily save their work at home where we don't have access to that computer. And that's what these web-first solutions like Google Docs or Office 365 or Apple iCloud have offered is a means for a student's work to be saved on the fly without having to worry about missing content or missing assignments. They do their assignment, they check it in through Google Workspace, the teacher receives immediate feedback. One casualty since COVID-19 has happened has been the computer lab. As Nate and Wendy, maybe you remember 
the large rooms that served as computer labs for students when you guys were kids or even when your kids have been in school. Now that everybody has a personal device, those rooms are being used for other purposes and every school is kind of doing something different. But one of the neat things that I'm seeing as a result of kids having these devices is that those rooms are being turned into STEM labs. So lots of robotics and 3D printers and programming and other STEM-based learning, which I know is near and dear to both of you. That is pretty cool. You can't virtualize a 3D printer. It is a physical object or, or other things of that nature. I tried. I was not successful. Well, the CAD is the virtual part. So there is some value there. In some ways, I can see that there's a lot of benefits to our shift to a online functioning. But it also seems like to me there's got to be some more redundancy for local functioning so that if and when internet connectivity is out, that you're not in a state where you can't function at all. I know that Google Office does allow for some offline activity. I think the browser will cache a lot of things and then it'll it'll resynchronize later on. So that's a plus. But if you're in a situation like you know, got to take the family to uh, some class or some you know some other offsite like away from home type activity, and other needs to get their work done, how do you get that work done? That's on Microsoft or I should say in the Google Office G Suite, whatever, so that they continue to be functional even though they can't upload it. And that's one of those things that just kind of concerns me a bit. And I know there are some mitigations, but being so dependent on it can be dangerous as well. I'm kind of curious, what things have you found that you can talk about on the server when it comes to old software, Bill? And how do you deal with that and the safety of the network in general? So the first thing that I do when I work with a new school is I check their backups. Are there backups in place? Are they working? How do we recover from those backups? And once I'm comfortable with where the backups are, then we start exploring. And in my most recent school, we have found a real treasure trove of software from various decades, some of it going all the way back to 1991. And why does that happen? At what point do you purge old software? In this particular case, the IT group that was helping them, who we've been communicating with, has said, we inherited a lot of this and we didn't want to break anything because we did not know who was responsible for what. And that's a very common issue in business and schools, government, where there's a lot of technical debt, meaning we're inheriting things that we didn't necessarily expect and we don't know what to do with it, so we won't touch it and we'll just hope that nothing breaks or no one needs it. What that drives are conversations with the school leadership or curriculum director, even just the teachers about what are you using nowadays in your classroom? What are the plans? I found an old typing program called Type to Learn, and I found that it's no longer needed. So I saved all of those installers off to a separate archive in case anybody needed to reference them but they're not part of the normal backup routine, so I'm not eating my backup storage. There were some music applications that I reached out to the music teacher, and she said, I haven't used that in 10 years. You're free to get rid of it. So we purged that, so we weren't using so much local storage on the network. So going through all of those software shares and all of that data just takes time and conversations and good communication with the appropriate parties. But what you end up with is clean storage where everybody knows what everything is and where it is and developing good practices on handling data and archival. So as an example for you both, 
when a student graduates from high school at one of our high schools we support, their data is retained in Google for one year, just in case they need to reference an old assignment. But after that, it's purged because chances are they'll never need that. And in the 12, 13, 14 years that I've been supporting schools, we've never had a sophomore in college ask us for their high school assignment. I certainly didn't get that option when I graduated high school. I'm pretty sure they shredded my papers as soon as I left. Yeah, and I don't think I really hung on to a lot of my stuff from high school either, but that's kind of nice the way that you've got that done, being able to reach out to teachers. Hey, do you still use this piece of software? Now say that there is a piece of software that they do still use. It's on a system that it's a lot harder to secure How do you make that work? Because it's a piece of software that the teacher said, this is what I need. This is what I like the students to use. Is there conflict there for you or how do you make that work? That ends up being a conversation with multiple people because sometimes an old piece of software like that, let's say it requires Windows 98 or Windows XP, may not be financially feasible for us to stand up a whole new lab and an offline network and everything else we need to run that program for, let's say, a week, tear it all down, put the lab back to where it was with a current operating system and current software. So what ends up happening is the building leadership has a conversation with that teacher about alternatives for some of those programs. And the nice part about that conversation is we get to introduce open source alternatives when we can. Very nice. I know we've talked about some different pieces of open source software that we get to use at home with the kids and the like. And I bet it is really nice for you when you get to be like, there is this awesome piece of open source education software that we can move in and take the place of this one that would be cost prohibitive in continuing to use. There are lots of options. And my favorite one to introduce is Audacity because at different points along the way, students have to record something, whether it's a personal podcast or a presentation, the teacher's expecting them to create a 21st century type of assignment. And so I always steer them towards Audacity and I tell them this is free. They can put it even on their home computer if they wanted to and get used to the interface a little bit and we can export that in a wide variety of formats for you to listen to and publish. That's a great example of an open source bit of software that actually a lot of people are using and kids can have access to it at a young age and learn it. And chances are it's going to stick around for many years to come. And it doesn't require the network to use. It's completely running on your system. It's 100% offline. It's 100% open source. It's a great mechanism to introduce students into the wonderful world of audio production. And there are a ton of great resources out there for a program like Audacity for the teachers to be able to learn it too, to be able to help the kids in the classroom. I know when I first started doing the editing for the show, I was not very familiar with Audacity. Yeah, I'd like pulled it up, played with it a little bit, but I had no idea how to go about going from your raw audio files to a finished product. And there's some great resources out there for that. And it'd be fantastic for kids to be able to do that because not only in the modern era are you expected to be able to record something and be able to share it, but then how do you take that and make it the very best it possibly can be? It's awesome to see that happening in schools too. I know my kids have played with, used Audacity. We've used OBS 
as part of our class-related stuff. My daughter did a project for one of the co-ops, and in that, she recorded herself playing some of the video games, did a voiceover for them using Audacity, and brought this all together in Caden Live. Yeah, that's very cool. One of the things that's becoming popular in schools now is esports. So schools are starting up these esports teams and they want to be able to stream what they're playing. And OBS happens to be a great tool to do that. Very effective in what it is. There's been some nice backing to it from other companies. It's getting some good financial backing. And so kids being able to learn OBS in school, I think, is definitely a beneficial skill as they're moving out to many different workforces about. Plus, it's open source. It doesn't cost the schools anything to run it. And the kids can play with it, use it at home as well. Now, when we started the show, we were saying how the older stuff is better, but it's kind of trailed into the open source stuff is better in some ways. So do you think maybe perhaps open source has captured some of the aspects of what made software of old great because it's not software as a service? I think what open source has done is it has allowed us to retain and revisit some very good software that was written at a time when concepts like memory management were important. One of my favorite classics was actually a game, and the open source variant of it is known as LF1, spelled A-L-E-P-H-O-N-E, which is a remake of the Bungie game Marathon, which came out in the 90s for Apple. Now that that game is open source, I don't have to worry about trying to find an old Mac and an old version of the game to play it. I can just simply download it from either Git or from OpenSUSE. Nate, speaking your language there. Oh, you are. Ears perked up. I'm all engaged again. Well, that's why I said it. I just wanted to make sure you were still <laughs> with us. Still there. So I just said OpenSUSE and here you are. And my heart fluttered. It was great. I'm so happy for you. There's also another <laughs> game called Warzone 2100, which was a real-time strategy game that became open source outright. So you still get that same game experience that you would have had at an earlier time because the software was made completely open source. And I'm always a big fan of when I see that. I know I like to work with the kids that are different co-ops and show them these different pieces of open source software because not only do I find them to be really good software, it is stuff that the kids can take home and work on too. I've talked quite a bit about our robotics team and the fun things we get to do with them. This is where Visual Studio Code was really cool. It kind of jumped in to fill the spot. They could install it at home. There was an open source module in order to make these specific robots that were using work with the open source software, two different really nice combinations. So like us, where we have our own robot at home, we can play with it without having to use that dedicated proprietary piece of software that Lego puts out for their robots that really isn't fun to code on and the kids can learn to code properly using this piece of software with me and at home. So even during the summer, if a kid finds a piece of software that they really enjoy, especially if it's in this open source realm, they don't need to have that school laptop to continue to play with it or use it. Yeah, that's pretty excellent. And I'm glad that solution was found to have that offline 
better experience with the programming of the robots. So now it's your turn to tell us what you think. Is sometimes the old stuff better than the new stuff? Do you think old tech has a leg up on some of the bits of technology we have today, or is everything new better? Leave us a comment anywhere you like. It can be on the Destination Linux forums, or it can be in the YouTube discussion section, wherever you like. Send us an email. That would be fun. I like reading emails. Then we can continue the conversation about old tech versus new tech. This episode of Linux Out Loud is sponsored by Bitwarden. Bitwarden is the password manager that we use and trust. Bitwarden lets you set up things like a pin to easily access your password manager, as well as additional authentication, such as master passwords, and adding phrases to fingerprint security, all to keep your passwords safe. Bitwarden is the easiest and safest way for individuals, teams, and businesses to store, share, and sync their sensitive data. Go to bitwarden.com tux to get started for free. Say you want that premium account that starts at just $10 per year. What comes with that? One gigabyte of encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F, and Duo, Vault Health Reports, TOTP Authenticator Storage and Generation, plus priority customer support. Make the smart move like many in the community have and go to bitwarden.com T-U-X to get started for free. If you're like me though, you want to show your appreciation for this awesome open source project by signing up for that premium edition, especially since it starts at just $10 a year. Thanks to Bitwarden for sponsoring this episode of Linux Out Loud. Bill, it looks like you're doing something that's well beyond my skills and abilities. You're deciding to go with something Kubernetes and something something immutable OS and you're evaluating the headaches versus the rewards. What's going on here? So one of the things that I've always wanted to do when I picked up my Pi cluster last year was learn this magical world of DevOps and Kubernetes because it's all over the tech news. And so I figured, why not just dive in? It can't be different than virtual machines, right? Wrong. It is very different. It is a foreign world to me as I'm more of a virtual machine kind of a guy than a container guy. But it's really opened my eyes to how web services are built out in the big public clouds and what skills are really needed to move forward in a technology career. So I have been looking at different versions of Kubernetes and what distribution of Linux should I run on my Pies? What's this immutable operating system stuff and is it worth it for me? And one of the things I've learned is an immutable operating system is one where you're not able to change core file structure of the Linux distribution. So in the OpenSUSE world, there's micro OS, which basically means you can make changes to your home and some parts of the operating system, but not everything. And when you go to do an update to your distribution, it's a little different. You run a different command and you're actually booting into the next snapshot of that operating system. It's a great way to secure an operating system. It just takes a little bit of learning, which I have had various degrees of success. So one of the things that I'm learning is how to create the necessary scripts to set up my Raspberry Pis so that I can continue on my journey of Kubernetes learning and containerization and try out some neat projects that I've wanted to learn more about. What is your end state with doing this? Are you planning on replacing some virtual machine 
setups that you have now? Are you, do you see there's a happy mix between having virtual machines versus having containerized setups? Where do you think this is all going? So the way I look at this is there's a car climbing a hill and you can't quite see over the crest of the hill yet. I'm still looking for that crest over the hill. So I'm not sure where this is going to end up, whether it means I can containerize all of the services I use in my home or whether I still need to use virtual machines. I have a hunch I'm still going to need virtual machines because I do unfortunately have to have some ability to run Windows virtual machines only because it's required for work. I wish it wasn't, but that's the reality of it. So I need a means of spinning up Windows virtual machines when I have to try something out that's work-related because that's what my home lab is partially for. Where I might end up in the end is my Linux services end up in containers and my Windows services have to stay virtual machines. I may keep some Linux distributions inside of virtual machines, especially when a new distro comes out and I want to see what its desktop looks like. And I want to try out all the fun things that I like to try when a new distribution comes out and I need virtual machines in order to do that. If you could ever figure out how to virtualize just one application that's supposed to run on Windows and somehow make it work in a really slick way in Linux, let me know because I have one application I need to run unless Adobe can get their head out of their fourth point of contact. I am also looking for that holy grail for a number of applications that I use for work, but I'm not quite there yet. But if I had to pick one application that I use on Windows that I have yet to completely replace with Linux, I would have to say it's Outlook because I use that extensively at work. And yes, there's Outlook Web Access and there are ways to make Outlook function in Linux using Evolution, for instance, but it's still not that crisp, clean UI that you expect with Outlook when you're using it in Windows. Actually, I used KDE Suite, KDE Personal Information Management Suite as my Outlook step-in, but I don't know if it can do the exchange, connect to an exchange. I don't know if it can do that. I tried it a few years ago. I didn't have much luck with it, and I'm not sure how well it works with all of the two-factor authentication mechanisms that are often required now, especially in the type of field where I work. So for me, it becomes a matter of time versus reward, especially this time of year where I just need something that I can grab quickly, make work, and not have to mess with so that I can get my job done that I need to get done and move on. Yeah, I would say email is one of those things that you just can't have be flaky on you. So I have had issues with contact in the past, but lately it's been pretty good, pretty solid, except for one module now is starting to act up again, which is the address book. I don't know why. No, yeah, the address book. It's acting a little bit funny. Don't know why. Can't seem to bring up my Google stuff, but time to do a bug report, I guess. I just blame the user. <laughs> That's fair. You can definitely blame the user and sometimes you can blame us. We had some listener feedback here not that long ago. This comes from Eduardo and he sent us an email says, hi, Wendy, Nate, and Matt, your show is my favorite. Thank you so much. I absolutely love it when Aww. we get some feedback on this, even when we kind of mess things up, which we definitely did. I loved the discussion about Linux for love and money on episode 114. I'd like to make two quickish points. One, Log4j was called out on the episode for being intentionally altered by the author. Please double check this. And he is absolutely right. This is one of the things that we got wrong 
It was not log4j that was intentionally altered. It was a different open source project. This one, maybe even worse, it was software registry npn with faker.js and color.js. So these are libraries that are used by different programs, different users, and it would put computers into this beeping loop where you are just stuck. Very, very not nice for this particular developer to do. It was covered on This Week in Linux. I think they even talked about a bit on Destination Linux. If I can find those particular episodes, I will throw those in there. So thank you for calling us out on that. We are not perfect people. Sometimes we make mistakes. So then he also goes on to say, while I agree the developers should be paid for their contributions, I disagree that companies should be compelled to pay them. The GNU for essential freedom start by saying that you have the freedom to run the program as you wish. And I absolutely agree with this in the fact that we shouldn't be forcing companies to pay, though it does make them not great open source software community members when they're relying on a particular piece of software and then they don't help make sure that that development's going forward. Not only is it not great as far as the community goes, but I think it's very detrimental to their business. That's one of the things that I brought up before. Why wouldn't you want to, whether it's having a developer help out, whether that's throwing some money to that particular project, why wouldn't you want to help it out so that your business model can continue? Yeah, I don't think companies should be required to contribute, but it seems like to be a good citizen of the open source community. And if you are making money off of open source, you really should be contributing to those open source projects that are helping you to generate a positive bottom line. Even a small amount of funding to those open source projects makes the world of a difference. I see where he's coming from. And I agree, they should not be required to contribute, but it just seems like they should be. Just like you know Noah, how he pays developers on projects he deploys at Alta Speed. I think it would be good if that is what other companies would do. But forcing it, no, I don't think that should be forced. I think companies need to be more responsible. And those that are not do need to be, I don't want to say shamed because that's not really appropriate, but people should be aware of, you know, this company is using this bit of software. They're not utilizing it. Or maybe the developer should reach out to those companies and say, hey, you know, I appreciate you using it. It would help continue the funding or continue the development of this project if you contributed toward it. I mean, another thing too right. would be some of these projects maybe should be attached to some sort of a foundation to help get funding. And those foundations should tap on those companies saying, hey, you know, you are using this. It is bringing you estimates of this amount or is this significant to your business as evidence of X, Y, or Z. It would be helpful if you contributed to these projects so we can continue the funding of the open source software that you continue to enjoy and to secure it for the future. Especially if it's a really small project, being able to take in funding is quite difficult. So when you are joining an organization that could help you with the funding, they can help take care of some of the tax stuff in the back end, some of the papers that need to be filed. So I do really like that idea. And yes, we did bring up Noah on that particular episode and the awesome way that he incorporates open source in his business at Alta Speed and helping to maintain those projects. It's a really good example. He's a positive when it comes to using open source and making money. He does it for both for love and money. 
And it would be really, really nice if other companies that are using open source could do the exact same thing. It's amazing the growth that we would get if all of these especially larger businesses that are using open source projects were helping out in some way to keep them going. And the changes that we could see because developers could spend more time on them, take this passion project and actually make a living on it. He wraps it up with keep up the great work and the awesome conversations. Thank you so much, Eduardo. We love hearing from you. And did we fix our boo-boo or not? I'd love to hear from you again. I'm pretty sure there are other examples that we just missed or would be better to bring up. But I think uh, those are at least a couple prominent ones that were out there. You know, Eduardo, feel free to call us out anytime we make a mistake because sometimes I... uh, I shoot off my mouth. <laughs> sometimes I do too. And sometimes I aren't that great when I'm typing things out. There was another thing that I got called out on on the discourse forum today that I just noticed before we started recording the show. On the clips that I put on on the main text digital network channel, there was a couple of them that said Linus out loud clips instead of Linux out loud clips. So when you see stuff that gets messed up, you got to let us know because sometimes we don't catch it say something and don't realize that it's wrong. So yeah, it's always nice if someone can come back and say, hey, you messed up here. I'm not above saying that I messed up. And so I got the text digital page fixed. So they now say Linux out loud clips and we'll do it again. I guarantee it. Absolutely. That's a promise that I have to you that I will screw up again. You're stepping outside your bubble a little bit, Nate. I know you have helped a church with their setup, but right now you're helping out a local business with their network and a point of sale system. What kind of system is this? How have you been able to help get this going? A homeschool family that I tutored one of their kids, they're starting up or they started a restaurant in the area. It's a carryout style restaurant. You can order online, which had nothing to do with this. And then it will automatically send to like a printer, a like a ticket so they can start making whatever it is. It's kind of a, an Indian, Hindustani style restaurant mixed with some like American style food. Very cool. I'm sure I could give the name of it. It's called Giovanni's Kitchen. Anyway, I was approached saying, you know computers well, which I've never advertised that, but you know computers well. Can you help us get our point of sale system operating? And they explained the situation was, in a nutshell, they had no Ethernet port or whatever in that part of the building that they're renting, they could plug into. The landlord or the owner of the building who owns the front business is giving them access to their internet, but just Wi-Fi. Initially, to get it set up, I out of my bin o things, I pulled out an old Linksys router, configured it to be like a, I don't know what the proper terminology is called. Help me out here, Bill. But basically it takes an Ethernet-only device and gives it wireless capabilities. So I did that. For whatever reason, it decided it would forget how to do that job. I tried to reset it up, didn't work. So I bought this thing called a Bros Trend AC1200 Ethernet to Wi-Fi Universal Wireless Adapter. So it had a really nice little web interface where I could set it up and then plug in the, the Ethernet cable into the printer. And the printer was online. Everything worked great. Very cool device. The interconnection with their website and everything, it's well beyond my understanding of how to do these things. So someone can order online, it prints it off, they have it, and they can start making things. It's working great for now. But my concern is that because it's using, it isn't encrypted, has a passphrase to be able to use it, network, 
it does intermix with the other business that's there. Not that I'm really concerned about anything happening between them, but I think that the security of it is a little bit dubious because, you know, I have no ability to control or help manage their information and make sure it stays operating properly. Again, probably not an issue. This is not a very densely populated area. Nobody here is going to be a target, but I just think there might be a better way of doing that than how it's right now just globbing onto the network. I'm sure I could probably set up a separate access point, plug it directly into the network, but then again, it's still really the same problem. They don't control the network and if they can avoid another expense, that's probably best, especially you know with the way things are today. What I thought was really cool is their point of sale system. It's Android based. They have like a little, for lack of a better term, it's like a phone with a printer built into it. They can take orders when people like come up the window there's a winery tasting room next door to it and they don't have food and they're basically the food option for people who go to the winery it's a real neat setup what they have going on there as far as like the synergy between the two businesses and also they have like a looks like a giant android tablet with a neck and a leg on it basically that's connected to a, a, a cash register and everything else and it's all android based it's a really slick very easy to use thing which compared to the point of sale systems that i used when i worked at mcdonald's in 1995 is way better. And I'm amazed by how the point of sale systems are today. And I didn't really get heavy into how it functions. I was helping a little bit here and there with getting things set up and whatnot. But very cool, the progress and how the point of sale systems can be completely a device you can just hold in your hand, take credit card and everything else just like that. And it's just absolutely amazing. Anyway, so I got to learn a little bit by helping to set up some of their components onto the network. It works great. They're doing well. And I'm really happy to see that I could help somebody else out with my very limited knowledge of such things. So one option that's available to this organization is to contact the folks managing the network and see if they can put them into a separate interface or VLAN, also known as a virtual LAN, which basically creates a separate lane of traffic for that particular organization to go out to the internet. It's a very common thing to do. What would happen is that organization would be able to go straight out to the internet, but not access the network assets or computers of the one side. And then that other side cannot access the resources and computers of the organization which you're assisting. So it just usually involves a simple conversation to the people managing the network to say, hey, is there some way to kind of protect us into our own little bubble and allow us internet access only so that we can't touch your stuff and you can't touch our stuff? Would that be okay? And usually it's not an issue. See, if you want to get some great network tips, talk to someone who works with networks all the time. That's pretty cool. What if the person, you know, can't set that up, the person managing the network, doesn't have that knowledge, but is willing to let Nate do that. That's what it would have to be. I did talk to the landlord, one that owns the internet service or purchased that and is letting the other business use it. When I asked some questions about it, they basically shrug says, I don't know. It's just set up the way it is and then we just use it. I would probably have to spend a day there, get the password to access it. I'm sure it's a Comcast router or Xfinity, whatever you want to call it. And I would just have to probably provision that in there. But that's a good idea. I don't really know. Probably have to follow some sort of guide and make sure I'm doing it correctly to make sure it's all VLAN out, separated out appropriately. You might even be able to call Comcast and see if they could walk you through it. Or another option would be to get a device that supports that type of networking and put it behind the Comcast modem. 
One device that comes to mind is the Ubiquiti Network Stream Machine, which would do that really well. Hmm. well that's a good idea. It'd be a simple like plug and play solution, essentially. Correct. Pretty straightforward. Well, very cool. I don't know how critical all this stuff is, but it's just something I kind of was noodling around and I thought I would bring it up here because Bill, you know lots of things because you're the professor. I have dabbled in some network appliances in my time. Well, thank you, Professor. That was an extremely humble way to put that, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. <laughs> Could it be any more humble? I think not. <laughs> now it's your turn to toss in your two cents, or if you're feeling generous, it'd be three, on today's topics. Hit that discourse form, drop us line under this video, or on the contact form by visiting tuxdigital.com contact. If you'd like to hang out with us on our preferred social media, see the links at the bottom of the show description. Find other great shows like Hardware Addicts, GameSphere, Linux Saloon, and more at TuxDigital.com. Show off your love for your favorite podcast and shows by visiting the Tux Digital merch store. Grab yourself some awesome swag, like the gamer-centric I Pause My Game to Be Here shirt, or join Team Wendy with some sinister Wendy swag. As always, we thank you for joining us. We'll be back next week with another awesome sode of Linux Out Loud. Until then, keep the banter-friendly conversation somewhat on topic, and have fun doing it.